0: Welcome back. Um, for those of you who weren't here for the previous panel, I'm Armand Mnander, the deputy editor of W Magazine. I'm sure you know, you all know Hussein Shalayan, the fashion designer. And we also have Pamela Goulban, the chief curator of the Musée des Arts Decoratifs in Paris. Um, Hussein started his own line 20 years ago, 1994. And uh, those of you who were here before maybe heard Goga reference his name in her in her own conversation, that's because um, for the past year, Hussein has been working with her on the demi-couture line of Vionnet, which is the uh, sort of most elevated of the lines, not the one we saw in the slideshow, but another one that they present in Paris. But for the purpose of this panel, we're just going to focus on Hussein. So we're going to have in the background a running slideshow of his work and also of an exhibition that he had at the Musée des Arts Décoratifs in Paris. I was very lucky to have Pamela join <laughs> us because of course I can deflect a lot to her. so uh, considering you also did a, a, a, um, an exhibition with Hussein, why don't you tell us why Hussein is a much more important designer than a lot of his contemporaries? I think you don't see a lot of living designers having a retrospective of them you said this are decoratif, let alone a designer in his mid-thirties, as was the case when he had his. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, first and foremost, I had the pleasure of meeting Hussein many years back because one of the first times was in 1999 when you presented your airmail collection at the museum, so we had had already um, a dialogue. But I wouldn't say it's a retrospective that we worked on. We worked really on an exhibition um, because it wasn't about the past, but it was about Hussein's language. Would you say that's right? True. But it was by far not the first time you had worked on an an exhibition because you actually did one here in Istanbul as well.
2: Well, the first one was at Groningen Museum in 2004, actually. And that was our first major museum show.
1: And then just before the one in Paris, you worked here in Istanbul?
2: Uh, That's right. And before that, it was the Tokyo Modern Museum. Before that, it was the Design Museum in London. And then before that, it was Wolfsburg in Germany at the museum. And then the first one before that uh, was in Groningen Museum in Holland.
1: So we can actually say that museums have been part of your creative life from pretty much the onset.
2: Definitely. I mean, when we first started um, showing in this format, it wasn't really um, done thing at that time. I was definitely one of the first people to do a show where I would show my films, I would show some of my drawings or photographs and then one room might be one dress, the next room might be ten dresses, another room might be a film. This was very challenging at that time because I really had no reference. Uh, So when we first started at the Groningen Museum it was very, definitely very challenging um, but very exciting as well. Um, And I was only 34 then. Um, And I guess it felt natural as well because the way I had done my shows were like installations in a way. So it was a very natural thing for me to work in that way. But putting it all together and also editing was one of the hardest things because I had such a big, already I wanted to put everything in and editing is the most painful thing.
0: Pamela, do you want to maybe take us through a little bit of the key moments in, in, in Hussein's career? Because I think it's very important for everyone to understand that his work is so about so much more, as you say, there were performances, it's about so much more than clothes on a runway. They were really, I mean, when I, I remember sugar, gla- su- sugar glass dresses that models broke with a mallet. I remember the resin airplane dress, you know, with a, with a resin wing that moved like an airplane, um, collapsible wooden table. I mean, can, can, can you put that into context for everyone a little bit?
1: There's so many. I think every collection almost from from the start had a very artistic feel to it. Although this is a conversation we've had from the beginning, is fashion art, and how do you put yourself within that conversation? And I know that although art is very important to you, you are a fashion designer.
2: Yes. I mean, you can probably call me I don't know, I don't believe in titles, honestly, but I'm really an ideas person, and fashion is my medium. so you can call me a fashion artist if you like. But I think for me, uh, I am ultimately interested in ideas, and I chose clothing as my medium because of my interest in the body. And honestly, I've given my life to this. I mean, I read a lot. I'm a very curious person. I, mean, I, I don't read as much as I'd like, but I try to read, and I have read a lot in the past. Now I'm getting so busy, it's becoming a chore, you know, like an actual effort. But um, um, generally, I guess I put all my you know, passion into this, and I think of uh, clothes. I, I think I'm a storyteller via clothes as well. Um, I think what's the difference between art and fashion, ultimately, is to do with the fact that you can only create, some well mostly, you can only create one art piece, whereas fashion is really an industrial process. Having said that, there are artists that are producing art pieces industrially too, and it could be argued. But I guess it's my processes that make the work what it is, and um, my starting points are definitely not very, like, typically fashion, let's say, because I am generally interested in the world, and um, I use, you know, other, facets in life as a source of inspiration. It could be a conversation, it could be body language, it could be cultural prejudice, it could be history, all sorts of things.
1: But you do structure a narrative
2: first. Absolutely, and uh, it's, it's an important thing for me, but at the end of the day what matters is the final thing, because if, you, if someone wants to wear a peace of mind, they don't need to know what the process is. The process is there for me to be inspired, and at the end the reason why someone should wear something is because they feel empowered, or they feel sexy, or they feel beautiful, or they feel whatever. So uh, the process is really there for me, and this has been a bit big misconception, that people ask me about my ideas, I tell them, and sometimes I think it's the hindrance to tell them, because they start to think of you as too conceptual, and this and that, and I'm thinking, well, you asked me about the ideas, so why are you then judging me for having ideas? So. Um, Actually, uh, I've, I've recently decided to talk less about the ideas and really show them the works more because I'm spending so much of my time in fittings and I am a perfectionist, which is very painful. So I am there fixing sleeve heads and collars and trying to eliminate seams. And this is really where, what I really enjoy doing. And of course, the stories are there, or the, you know, the inspiration is there so I can design a collection. Uh, and you can call the process a piece of work as well, but often it's personal to me.
1: But I remember when we were mounting the show, one of the major points that I kept coming back to, I want to show more of your clothes.
2: Absolutely, because I think um, when, you know, when you are a designer like me, I think people just think you make show pieces all the time, and I'm thinking actually 90% of the collection are just beautiful clothes, and then there's going to be like 10 show pieces you put there so that it becomes a cultural experience for your audience. But then if the press only focus on that, you know what happens. And then the high street or other designers then refer to your other clothes that the press don't write about. There's this strange duality.
1: But isn't fashion all about duality, contradiction?
2: Well, yes, and we spoke about this at length, it is. But I wish that, like you have, a serious discourse in the art world and the architecture world. I wish the same happened in the fashion world. And I have to say, everyone, Pamela Golbin is like one of the few people that actually within our industry is a specialist in fashion and is also, you know, who knows also about fashion history in depth. And she's not a popularist type of person. <laughs> and actually, it's quite rare, and there's probably like four or five other people like Pamela who are writers and who are curators and who really look at fashion in depth, who maybe are not as well known uh, as some of the other editors who are much more popularist and not really necessarily knowledgeable about their field, but they have an amazing network or whatever. So I think, which is also fine and it's, it's exciting, but just Pamela is, is uh, definitely a specialist in her field. And uh, that was, re- the conversations were very enjoyable because um, I think you know, there was, it sort of, there was a deeper understanding uh, of what we should show. Um, I wanted to ask you, do you I, there's, it's
0: a strange question to ask, but do you feel that, in some sense, you have been hurt by your talent, what you just said, that people focus on these very incredible things that you make, and because fashion moves so quickly, perhaps they don't pay enough attention to to the other to the other
2: side. Um, I've been told this before that, or they I've been asked this before, um, if I've been hurt by my skills or whatever, and my worldview. The way I see it is that um, I'm well. I have a mixture of feelings because, um, in one hand, I feel like I, I, like I wish there was more serious discourse around fashion, so not any, whoever, not anyone could do it without the training mm-hmm. and without. The actual passion, let's say, and you have these celebrities that are becoming designers now. It kind of cheapens what we do, and these guys cannot have a market as well, and they actually affect our position in the market, and no one cares. So I think we're living in this era of um, an apathy, and uh, and I, you know, I sort of feel that, um, you know, I'm kind of a positivist. Weirdly, I can get down, but then I think, you know, sometimes I get disappointed. I manage to pick myself up again because I've been doing it for 20 years. So ultimately, I think I've remained positive, and this is the reason why I think I've, been manage- I've managed to do it for so long. Um, and I think that's kind of innate, but also maybe a perspective um, because I also feel lucky that I can do it, but it's so difficult. Sometimes I wish I'll go and just plant potatoes in Cyprus and live with my mother and <laughs> my, you know, cousins. So cook. You're a very good cook. <laughs> well, and a, and I don't uh, cook enough though. Another thing that's happened in these past
0: 20 years is that there has been a huge huge change in technology. And you have been a pioneer of using technology in fashion. I mean as I was saying, you've, you've done dresses that light up. You've done, you're always a, even goga mentioned before, you know, the fabric research that goes into the collections that you Do you really have been a pioneer of incorporating technology into fashion? which has been of great advantage to you. But at the same time, some of the advances in technology have maybe worked against really creative designers like you because they've enabled, first of all, they've they've enabled mass fashion to really explode and to get everywhere. And that's really a tank top and a pair of hot pants that anyone can buy anywhere for very, very little money and that some people consider fashion even if it's not. And then also, it has meant, and we were Talking about this earlier, that you have a fashion show that you've put six months of very hard work into, and by the time the last model has come off the runway, people have already seen it on their phones, even before you get back to your studio, and they're already Mm -hmm. copying, they're already dissecting it, they're already commenting on it. So there's no, there's no time
2: really to reflect on the work anymore. Well, I mean. Watching the other talks here yesterday and today, um, and there has been some references to globalisation and to craftsmanship and the lack of it, or the kind of uh, the idea of going back to it, etc. But um, but I think one of the most important things amongst that, and I think those are very valuable arguments, is also the idea of the digital world that we're mm-hmm. in. And this is I'm definitely one of the designers from uh, where where. In the beginning, there was no digital fashion. In the 90s, we would wait for six months to see glossy images of our collections in Collectionia magazine. And we'd be like, "Wow," you know, and um, because there'll be this sort of person taking crappy photographs of your work, uh, you know, and they will be printed at Pronta Print. You know, these printers that print your stuff. You give them a, you give them the disc, and um, and honestly. Um, the idea we then looked forward to editorial because were, everything was you know then done properly uh, so and the other big thing also connected to this was that newspapers always used our showpieces to sell their papers so to make it attractive for people so to entice people so we were in a way uh, creating our image through this process but also uh, those guys were controlling how we were perceived by the public, because I always see the press and the writers as part of the process we create. They're not an isolated entity. So uh, actually, what was happening was that the press the printed press was creating our image, and then our real clothes were actually influencing, let's say the industry. And um, there was, again, a strange separation between the two. So what's happened now with the digital era is that, like uh, like Armand is saying, people can see our collections before we even go back to our studios to London. So uh, yes, it means that fashion has become more democratic. But also it means that you know everyone is, especially the high street, who copy all designers. They don't care. They can produce. Uh, you know, they could be inspired by our collections and have it in before we, b- before we can deliver, because they have the facility. So actually, we are kind of... I feel that w- we are living in a very sort of... Um, it's, it's sort of cheapening, and um, it's frustrating. So I am really tempted sometimes just to stop the whole industrial process and just take orders, you know, personal orders, present my collection somehow, Because it is sort of a counter reaction to that. Uh, But meanwhile, I am interested in technology because, in my opinion, so many things have been done in fashion. The only thing that you can do to make something newer is via the use of technology. So, yes, I am interested in that, but I'm also super interested in craftsmanship. And the amount of time a lot of our work, you know, a lot of my things take is astounding. You know, we could be spending like weeks and weeks on top half of a dress. So it's, it's actually again. You should do this job if you feel passionate <laughs> and if you feel if you feel patient. I'm also very patient, and I realise that as time goes on that I am like I don't lose my temper that often. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Is anybody from your team here? No, <laughs> I really
2: don't. They can tell you I don't. I really don't. I mean, of course, I have my way yes. of expressing anger, uh-huh. but. Um, I th- it's I a I different ima- way of yeah. expressing it. I
1: imagine it's more frustration than anger. But I've to start
2: sketching more. Of this.
1: <laughs> T- Twenty years, being an independent yeah. is absolutely incredible in today's yeah. we've had time in, we've
2: had we've had partnerships during that sure. time, but yeah.
1: But and you have had um, collaborations that you tested. There was yeah. in New York. There was SID. in Germany. There was Puma, yes. even though it was owned by PPR yes. now, caring. Um, the Vionnet collaboration, what does that
2: bring to your work? Um, it definitely keeps me on my toes because um, I have to give service to another entity and actually, um, uh, it's challenging because it's not just you going there and doing your thing, it's to comment on another vision. And of course, the Vionnet project, as Gogo was saying, there's an amazing heritage and I always try to do what I think she would have done if she was alive. Um, so, um, there's no point in copying the archives that's already beautiful and you can just do that. The point is to create a new comment on what we think Vionne is about. Uh, but also, there are parallels with my work because I am interested in technology and there is an element of graphicism that I've been interested in uh, that I think kind of applies nicely. So I was, I was kind of of course I was surprised that Gogo approached me, but I was also not surprised as well.
1: But how do you feel today, all these houses that are being brought forth mm-hmm. from the past, mm-hmm. instead of having designers, young designers or designers that have been established like yourself, give them the necessary finances to continue more efficiently?
2: The, the um,
1: Your own brand?
2: Well. I mean, I think that, um, I always say, if there was no financial restrictions and time restrictions within fashion, it's one of the best jobs. But the financial restrictions and time restrictions makes it a very difficult job. And I think that, uh, also, I was never really that money-orientated until probably about 10 years ago, where I started to really worry about, you know, how am I going to function? And then I realized, actually, um, uh, to be in business, you have to be a good communicator, and I'm already a good communicator, so I thought, well, just communicate, and things will happen. And actually, I've been quite lucky to have had these consultancies, because they really funded my business, and I had to do them, and I learned a lot from them as well. And actually, I gave a lot to them, a lot of passion as well, and I didn't just see it as, oh, it's just a project to make money. I really gave it a lot, because I thought, well, Puma is a very different thing to what I do normally, but why not make it interesting? So. And we did really nice things with them, honestly, for five years. But to your question, I mean, from my point as a magazine editor, because we're all
0: roughly from the same generation, I've I've seen that shift. I Mm -hmm. remember when I went to your first collections, uh, it was around the same time as Alexander McQueen's first collections. There was really a drive on the part of the industry to find and nurture new talents. And then there was a switch that happened at a certain point where it was about reviving these old brands and uh, many of these talents were w- went to work at those brands and that hasn't really changed since and I think it's just easier for, for for for business people and also for the press actually to just latch on to an existing story instead of creating a new one
2: well fashion is a retrospective thing and I think that we and you know I think there is this sort of um, uh, tendency to, to want to see older brands survive, which I think is kind of nice because I would like it that if something happens to me, that somebody's going to want to carry on what I've built, it is a good thing, but at the same time, not to the expense of killing the new. so I think there needs to be a balance mm-hmm. uh, in how it's done and um, I think there are, there's room for all of it really mm-hmm. I mean. I, having said that, I do think there are far too many designers around and it does kind of oversaturate the market.
1: And at the same time, I mean, when you were at Central Saint Martins, there was what, 12, 13?
2: In my, in my class there was 13 people, everybody, and it was amazing because we all had our own characters. And now there's 70 people in those classes, which means the quality of the education goes down.
0: Well, but also you know, so it tells you that the explosion that has happened with fashion. I mean, it's, where it's become
2: fashionable to be a fashion designer, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everyone wants to be a designer. I'm like, do you know what it takes? <laughs>
1: well, so what does it take?
2: I think it takes strength. I think it takes belief. I think it takes confidence. It also takes patience. I think it takes, uh, in my opinion, uh, you have to have money. Um, I mean, I came from a reasonably wealthy family, but no one funded my business i had to find other collaborations outside so um, and um, initially i never did it for the money i did it because i really enjoyed it and i really felt i had something new to say at that time especially when i started
0: do you feel li- like in order to be do you feel like in order to be successful now you have to be part of a I mean by successful i mean financially successful mm-hmm. do you do you think you really need to be part of a conglomerate. I mean, I, I find that a lot of designers now, when uh, again to go back, going back to the 90s, I feel like these so many designers were really slowly building their brand. That was the goal. And my, I don't know if it's a rather cynical take, but my feeling now is that a lot of young designers are building their brand in order to be bought by someone else, and the sooner the better.
2: I think you're absolutely right. I think you do have to be part of a conglomerate in a way, but. Also, being part of a conglomerate is like being in a prison as well, because Mm. so much is expected of you. And um, I always think, you know, McQueen is from my generation and I just can't believe that he's not around anymore. I don't think that necessarily was to do with this, what we're saying, but there must be some element of stress due to the situation that you're in and what's expected of you. So I think, um, and I don't believe, 100% hundred percent that you have to remain an independent because I think it's about a good partnership if you find someone that's willing to invest in your vision long term there's nothing wrong with that I think when people expect quick results this is when you can't actually perform uh, realistically especially if your brand is you know more artisanal and more let's say kind of less conventional and um, so I feel uh, you should also be open to that but I think it has to be the right collaboration. Otherwise, the designers would just explode. So let's see what's going to happen with these younger acquisitions right now. Uh, if those designers are going to feel that they have their freedom, let's hope they will and that it will blossom. Mm-hmm.
1: What does this freedom bring to you?
2: Um, my, well, like I said, I'm very open to, if someone wanted to invest in my brand and it was the right partner, I'm very open to mm. it. It just has to be the right partner. Because we've had so many people who have approached us and the kind of budgets that they talk about when they want to, they have no idea that actually you, the designer just won't go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the freedom for me is, uh, I mean, sometimes I think, you know, you could have a smaller business and a, and a bigger, you know, and a good sense of, uh, you know, and the peace of mind, let's say, that's preferable than being a, to be a lot wealthier and, you know, sell more, but then constantly feel that you are being tested. And I am feeling pressurized already as an independent. Um, But at the end of the day, it's my choice. And knowing that it's my choice is a form of relief.
1: And how do you integrate such level of creativity on a constant basis? Because being an artist, you don't have the constraints of time, whereas you have very, very specific dates that are set every couple of months where you have to deliver.
2: Really important question Uh, for those of you who want to be designers. You you have to constantly have ideas, and you have to. I think of the work as eras of work, so I usually work in pairs. There's collections that are kind of connected to each other, and then there'll be a new chapter that opens in the next era of work. Um, And actually, I'm a hard worker, really. I mean, I work a lot, and I'm not like one of those owners of brands that's out till 4 a.m. in the morning and then I go, go to the office at 2, o- 2 p.m. I'm not one of those guys. I'm at work every day. And I'm, I take it very seriously. I don't take myself very seriously, but I take the work seriously. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah.
1: what I was going to say because there is this misconception that you're extremely conceptual and you're very oh serious, but nonsense. you're always laughing.
2: Oh, yeah, because I like to... I'm a Mr. Adventure. I like to have a good adventure. Look at the work. <laughs> I mean, I am, I am also enjoying it because I think of... Going back to what you're saying, like, you know, Peter talked about escapism. I always say that my work is sort of something that fills the gap between fantasy and reality. Because as a child, I had a big issue with boredom. And boredom is a really big deal. You know, if you're bored, you create your own world because you want that world to be more colorful. So yes, I don't really quite call it escapism because I have to have my feet on the ground as well. And I'm running a business, I'm responsible for others that work for me, I have to pay their salaries every month blah, blah, blah. But I think uh, definitely I was the only child, uh, you know, and I really had to create my own world because I guess I wanted to, um, it it kept me sort of uh, sane and it kept me um, interested and I was naturally curious as well. So. There was a word
1: that came up yesterday with Tim Walker and that you actually use quite often as well, authentic.
2: Yes. I mean, authenticity is a big thing for me because um, life is full of so much information, so many people. um, How can I put it? If you remain authentic to yourself, somehow, at some point, it will shine through. And I find that I inspire a lot of other people, which is a great feeling for me, many times. And uh, because they think, oh, if you can do it, I can do it. And I'm thinking, okay, do it. But then let's see how, you know, the idea is you have to stick to it because a lot of people give up very quickly. I was going
0: to ask you, maybe we can use the slideshow as a point of reference whenever you see something particularly interesting or that brings up a particularly vivid memory, but um, just wanted to know how, what, what would you say is your, your signature in a sense, what truly the, the, the, the common thread through, throughout your work?
2: Yes, there is one. Um, it's to create a sense of life in the clothes, that they're either a part of a, an animation I may have created or part of a story, and they become a component of that. And I love that, that, to sense from the composition. I'm a compositional designer, so when you look at it, I always create processes to create that composition. And maybe the, the particular dress you're looking at is a moment of that. So I love the idea that you can see that something has happened to that garment, and there's this anticipation there that, that I enjoy very much. But even with the buried dress that you're seeing now, I created a whole story for it, and the dress was part of that story. And can I even wrote
0: the. Can you tell the idea? Can you explain that it was buried? That
2: yeah, there was this dress that many of who, of you who know my work uh, is my very uh, from my early, you know, from the beginning, from 1995. Actually, even earlier, I started the process in '93, and the idea was that I created a story which involved uh, the idea of burying, uh, and then I extracted that part of the story. And put it into the garment as little text, so it became a document of that actual situation. AML clothes is the same; it's a dress that you can wear because it marks your absence or your presence. So the garment becomes a token of your absence when you're longing to be elsewhere. So I think a lot of it comes from, like, this idea of separation is a big thing in my work because I was kind of, you know, um, I left Cyprus at a young age. And um, so I was longing always to be there. But I was in London, and I was brought up between two parents. So definitely, that's a big thing for me. And I think, um, yeah, and my interest in flight comes from that, too, this idea of separation. And also, you know, then I took it a lot further, of course. So there are definitely things in my life that I experienced that has really influenced my work.
1: Istanbul is actually present in your work.
2: I love on Istanbul. And off. Yeah, it's my favorite city. Honestly, I'm not saying it because I'm Turkish. Um, I really mean it. Uh, because I've been to so many cities in Europe, and it's definitely the most exciting one in Europe. And... Um,
1: because we started the exhibition with I Am Sad Leila.
2: That's right. It was set up Erener singing a classical song. And uh, actually, it's going to be in Istanbul Modern here soon. Um, and yes, because I think this city has so much to offer, I think it's... It's chaotic, but it's so, it's beautiful. It has ugly parts, but then the ugly parts make the beauty become more beautiful. I think it's uh, I think it's how can I put it? I meet so many amazing people from here that are multifaceted. I think, um, yeah, and uh, events that take place here sadden me incredibly, and we follow it all the time. So I I feel like um, sometimes I feel like I leave my heart here every time I go. So yeah.
1: Well, you did that installation of Istanbul with all of the 150 names yeah. that the city has had over the years.
2: Yeah, it's, it's called Imminence of Desire and it's about how so many cultures have, have uh, desired Istanbul and give, gave it their own name, in fact, and that was what fascinated me. So it was actually like how the, the different, it's like an old airport sign, the names turn. Uh, and then all you hear in the background are actually seagulls, and the idea is that they have been the eternal inhabitants of Istanbul. So I, s- I saw a real beauty in that. And then we actually had that next to Amsad Leyla piece, which then connected the Turkish classical singing with that situation as well. I thought there was a real, um, I don't know, there was a real beauty there somehow.
1: How has your storytelling changed over 20 years? Do you think it's gotten more sophisticated? Has it gotten much more um, uh, sleek or much... Uh, how do you see that evolution?
2: I think that I'm learning to strip down a lot more. I think that as I get older, I have, I hate everything. I mean, I hate... <laughs> I mean, sometimes I, at last collection, I drew 500 drawings to extract, like, 80 drawings from it and I have, I, I, I've become very critical of myself and um, I think, um, yeah, I'm learning to strip down because I think it's much harder to strip down than to add on actually. Knowing what to miss out when you're designing is a lot harder than adding all the things on.
0: You were saying something yesterday that I thought was really interesting, that a lot of the times you love your weaknesses and people love your strengths. And it becomes That was
2: Peter that said that.
0: <laughs> oh, but I love yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a beautiful comment. It, yeah. it, it was a beautiful, yeah. a beautiful, I
2: think one. that we are all kind of creatures where I'm definitely have a strong character, but I'm also very vulnerable. I mean, and I have to embrace that. And I think we're all. This is part of being human, isn't it? That to, to, to embrace all everything about yourselves. And I mean, you know, like, for instance, Pamela is someone that you know I thought of as like this unapproachable curator. Oh, my God, she's the head of Musée des Arts. (laughs) And and then you get to meet her as a person, and she's really warm and curious. And yesterday, we even took her to a friend's house whose baby we wanted to see, and she completely participated. And you think to yourself, actually, being human is about all these different experiences, exposing yourself to, like, we were normal creatures, and, you know, we have strengths and weaknesses and curiosities. And I think um, it's really good to be in touch with it. Because a lot of us aren't in touch with it and we take ourselves too seriously.
1: The fashion industry has a lot of people who work around it, and we were speaking about stylists and photographers and editors and how all of that actually um, comes together as a family, sometimes dysfunctionally, sometimes not. After 20 years, how do you feel about all those relationships?
2: Okay, I mean, In my opinion, uh, in that spectrum, designers are in the worst position because (laughs) um, we're having to run businesses. We have to worry about paying people's salaries, paying rent. These guys do not have to have offices in that way. They can work from home and then go and charge thousands of dollars for doing the job. We have to run businesses. So, actually, we're in the worst position, in my opinion, and we also create ingredients for these guys to work with. And yes. We we need each other because I feel definitely stylists, photographers, writers. We're all part of the same discourse, not separate. And we create ing- ingredients for the writers, and the writers then relay our work to the public. And it's a cy- and then the stylists as well, art directors also. So there's a cycle, vicious. It's like the vicious, you know, chain. So I think um, you know what I would like is more. L- I think what we have is, I call it like um, appreciation fatigue and I do feel that we are living in an era where we're learning, we we have lost empathy, we have lost, um, we don't know how to appreciate things anymore, and going back to Dice Kayak's talk actually, um, we don't appreciate craftsmanship, I mean in a way the more we see and the more we're exposed, like again in the same panel this came up, I think the less we appreciate. So sometimes we could be knowledgeable, but doesn't mean you, you know how to see and how to appreciate. There's a difference. So you can know about the world, but it doesn't mean that you respect it enough. So I do feel uh, a lot of it comes through education. I think that fashion education for me is not enough. I don't think, uh, I think, I don't think it's multifaceted enough. Um, I think it's uh, to, to be a good designer, I think you also have to look at other aspects of the world to understand where the body fits in, how the body fits into that. And uh, so for me, I guess I'm a kind of a holistic designer, let's say, because I like to look at other elements in the world to, to, you know, enrich my design.
1: I think we might, it's time to take a couple of questions on that note. Yeah. Right,
0: there's, do we have a microphone?
3: Firstly, I just want to say that your work in the 90s and specifically your 98 um, spring between show really impacted me and I'm sure I speak for a lot of other fashion enthusiasts. And well, specifically my question is about that time in your life, like what was it like in terms of the response you got to your controversial work?
2: I always did something that fascinated me and excited me. And what what you do is you start your work because y- you are interested in an idea and you're exploring it yourself. And um, you then share that with people in the world. And you don't know what people are going to say. And I am quite brave, actually. I've taken a lot of risks, and um, I still take risks. I think without taking risks, you don't grow. I think you you stay, you just don't grow. And I I think. I can say to you that I realized that I'm brave after many years uh, because I looked at other people and how they don't take risks. And in that era, definitely I felt that um, I was actually very excited. I'm still excited, but in that time, I, ha- I didn't know what, was going to fa- what I was going to face later. So I was actually um, always living with hope and um, quite poss- optimistic. And I, I do remain optimistic, but in those days, You know, I virtually lived in the studio and, um, you know, when my friends went out, I was always working. And this is the thing, you know, this is really hard work. And if you want this to really succeed, you have to be prepared to put the hours in. So I remember a lot of my contemporaries, they were going out partying. I was in in my studio (laughs) and eating, cooking and eating, you know, and then continuing. And I had a routine. So I was actually super organized. Um, And I still am quite organized, I guess. You know, my parents always felt the most important thing was hard work and education, and they really banged this onto our head in Cyprus, in my family, both mother's side and father's side. So we had to learn languages, we had to learn instruments, we had to, you know, do so many things to please them in a way. I think then I applied that ethic into my work. Uh, But I think in that era that you're talking about, the quality of my life was terrible. And in the last 10 years, the quality of my life is better because I decided that, you know, I don't want to be a slave to this. It could be a slave to me, you know?
1: Are your parents finally happy?
2: Oh, they were always happy. I mean, I have very broke. I'm from a broken family. I'm not, I mean, you know, I'm not like there is... I had step-grand... you know, step-mothers and fathers and I had to share my room with a, uh, with a stepsister when I was 11. You know, imagine in Cyprus that would not be heard of, you sharing your room suddenly with a stepsister <laughs> that comes in and you've had your own room to yourself, I was excited about it, but it was unheard of. But I think it's made me very open to new situations, so kids who are from you know, broken families whose parents then marry and have other children, if they use it well they can become very open human beings.
4: Ben de Kıbrıslıyım bu arada. Merhaba. Merhaba. Ben şeyi merak ediyorum. Hani Buraya gel- İngiltere'ye gittiğinizde ailenizden koptunuz. Ve Kıbrıs'ta çok farklı bir kültürdeyiz. Biz buraya göre ve İngiltere'ye göre. O zaman moda ve... Yani çok büyük bir isimsiniz moda ve sanat adına. Çok iyi bir örneksiniz. Ama hem bir taraftan aile özlemi, bir taraftan aileyi... ...mutlu etmeye çabaları ve bir taraftan Londra'nın içinde eminim kaybolmuşsunuzdur. Yani ilk dönemde çok e, iyi işler yapıyorsunuz ama tabii ki her insan duygusal, duygusal bir yönünüzler vardır söylediğiniz gibi. Hani bunun altından en kötü dönemlerinizde teslim etmeniz gereken bir zaman dilimi var. Mesela 6 ay dedik hani bir koleksiyon hazırlamanız lazım. Ve çok stresli bir dönem yaşadığınızda hani bunun altından sizi en fazla kaldıran şey ne oldu?
2: I uh, friends, So, I don't know, do we translate what she asked? Shall I just quickly translate? Yeah. Oh, yeah, so yeah. she's asked me, she said that uh, because I, you know, I, I, live, I live in London, I'm separated from my family, blah, blah, blah, and if I have stress, how do I deal with it? And actually, friendships is the most important thing. Friendships, and if you have family as well that you're close to, is the most important thing. And actually, I always say that my Mediterranean background um, because actually we are different you 're right from mainland Turkey, we identify with Turkey, but we are islanders, and actually we are more Mediterranean in a way, so we have maybe more in common with people from the Aegean here and maybe from the south of, with the south of Turkey, and definitely Greece. So I think uh, there is a slight cultural difference, but we, but we do identify with Turkey, and we should you know also. I think Turkey's done a lot for us and blah blah blah, it's a whole conversation. But, um, I think at the same time, uh, I feel grateful that I have, a very, I have good family connections uh, and, they, and the affection you have in the Turkish culture, you don't have this in England. You don't have that warmth, to be honest. So, if I feel lucky that I was educated in England but I had the family structure. And they always came to the shows. They came with their food and whatever it was. And it always was very heartwarming, to be honest. Because essentially, um, a lot of my friends in London, they're not connected to their families in the same way. So I I think we're lucky. And you're lucky as well. Because whatever you do, they'll support you, hopefully. Even if they don't agree with your decisions, hopefully. (laughs) yeah.
0: Anyone else?
1: Um, you mentioned technology being a really important part of your work. Um, as the innovations in the field start to grow and you know they start to develop exponentially, what do you think is going to be the defining factor between fashion and gadgetry um, in the f- in the
4: future and the imminent you know next few years? It's
2: imminent. Yeah. It's imminent. It's absolutely going. To, it's already happening. There is already technology incorporated into clothes uh, to help you function better or to improve. If technology is used to improve something, it's always great. you know it uh, depends how you use it. but um, yes, I am interested in that side of things, but um, my work within you know connected to that has remained prototypes because I was never able to do like actually produce uh, clothes that on a mass scale that you can transform or you can show a video on or whatever it is so um, I am interested in that side of things, but it needs a lot of investment, and it needs a collaborative effort. It, it's not just about one component.
0: Can you, uh, can you just maybe pass it to the, the lady in white? right?
4: you think what what do you think is fashion's um, reason of going on what who is going to wear your clothes who should or what should we wear what who should we be who should and do you have any political um, aspects of the work besides of course we can see that the whole world is changing and your concepts are always changing accordingly but...
2: Hmm. Um, what where, what, where do I see things going? Yeah, G- and,
4: and yeah. W- where, w- why do you do this, I mean really? People should wear or... And why, why, why should people wear anything or why should people be themselves or the person you're subjecting them to be? Um, well,
2: I think that if you, if you really know about my work you will appreciate hopefully the work that goes into the work, the effort that goes into it, and hopefully you'll be inspired and you'll buy it because it empowers you or it makes you feel like, confident or beautiful or whatever it is. Uh, I mean, all, all of us designers are trying to do the same in a way. Uh, but for me, really from a young age, it's been always about empowering women, honestly. It's and, really nice. and uh, Because I was brought up by women. And uh, because my, you know, my mother, my mother's sister, my grandmother and even on my father's side, it was the women that I was exposed to because my father lived in England. So, uh, but really um, it was always about, I always felt that women were not treated in the right way. I always thought of them as more superior than men, honestly speaking. I always thought that um, they were not given what they deserved and I think they worked harder. I think they were more thoughtful, all of those things.
4: because at, uh, at the last slide, I saw a naked woman.
2: Yeah. And that's that, and said, that, the that power was
4: empowering. Absolutely. Really,
2: yeah. I think of nudity as, a, as also a form of code, a dress code. It's a choice. Because that is what you chose, how you chose to be looked at. So it's another you know, comment on what attire means, actually. I don't think of nudity as sexual, to be honest, at all. Ooh. In fact, a lot of the time... Uh, in a performance situation, a nude would feel, it would feel a lot less personal because there's a mass audience, and that nude would feel a lot more exposed with just two people in front of them. It's very strange.
4: Yeah, it takes guts.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but empowerment is a big thing for me from a young age because I really thought that um, the women, especially in the geography we come from, were amazing but never got the credit. The men just got the credit for doing nothing. <laughs> That's how I felt. Well.
0: Okay, I think we have time for one more because I think I t- someone had the microphone before. and then we'll Easy question, you please. You made me pass around. Oh, I'm so yeah. sorry I didn't it's see. Okay, so you okay. have the last one. You have it's the place was, of honor. Okay.
3: <laughs> um, first of all, I really want to say I admire you a lot. I'm sorry, my voice always does this when I'm speaking to the microphone. I, I have been following you since, I don't know, Probably a while because um, you're one of the first ones from Turkey to me um, because I studied fashion in '98 and like I was always wondered I, I had a chance to meet Bahar Korcan and some of the older designers because now the designers now they're I think so lucky to have you and the technology and. Everything else because it's all around, as you said, and it became fashion to be a fashion designer. But how did you find the courage in '95 to build? Like, I know you're very passionate because I heard about your bankruptcy situations and your struggles because of Itkip and other.
2: Well, Itkip actually really empowered us. Yeah, we I know. We wouldn't have been able to do a lot of our shows and Dice Kayak. We got to know each other very well. We would not have been able to do those shows without their support, I know, honestly. I know, but yeah.
3: n- like you guys got, but even before that, you started this. Like, how did you find that card? just true I never passion? was planning
2: to do it, it, it evolved naturally. Okay. I can share a moment with you why it happened. I mean, I graduated from St. Martin's in 93, and I was looking for work. I was actually applying for this, le- sending letters to various people. And then I was given a window at a store, a store called Brown's, which is an important fashion store in London, especially then, even more important. And they had given a window to John Galliano ten years before that. So when I had got, got a window with my graduation collection, it was like a news-worthy material somehow. And it was with my buried collection. And uh, then what happened was that uh, I started to get commissions by, from individuals, and I thought, how am I going to manage this? And uh, I remember one of the buyers in a really camp way at Brown said to me, "Oh, darling, if you don't do it now, you'll be history. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> and, um, and basically, I then thought, well, actually, I'm getting commissions. And there was a, a brother of a friend of mine who wanted to help me financially. And I thought, why not try it? And I always was someone that was doing things in my own way, which is really something that I think comes from my family. We have a way of doing things in our own way. That I, and I'm very independently you know I'm an independent thinker so I had a go and then one thing led to another so it was a big risk factor but I was never planning to do it it just organically happened um, and then I started to show in London fashion week then we started to sell in Japan which at that time was what uh, you know the industry really relied on sales from Japan and then one thing led to another and then we started to show in Paris about 12 years ago uh, but yeah, I think you have to have you have to be a risk taker. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you all so much. Thank
1: yeah. you.